Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. Welcome everyone to the Maximus podcast. I'm very, very excited today to have Dr. Elliot Kamenetsky, who is a fellow licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of uh, OCD and anxiety disorders. And he's the founder of My OCD Care, um, a private practice that's uh, catering to those things. He's also a parenting coach, husband and father. So a lot of interesting uh, things to talk about uh, as related to masculinity. So Dr. Kamenetsky completed his uh, PhD in clinical psychology from Hofstra University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Northwell Health's OCD Center. He is a, a true expert on OCD and anxiety disorders, and we'll have a really, really interesting conversation about uh, how do we deal with stress and anxiety in a, in a modern era where it's very conducive to feel that way, um, and what are appropriate ways of uh, addressing and handling that as a guy. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My, my pleasure. I always think it's so great to um, you know, talk to uh, fellow male clinicians. Unfortunately, it's uh, rare, <laughs> rare things these days, um, but I, I think there's, there's so much potential for, especially I think a male audience who, um, you know, it's kind of funny, there's like a Twitter meme uh, that's going around right now. That's like men would rather, I don't know, do X, Y, and Z rather than go to therapy, <laughs> which, right. you know, it kind of, I mean, I enjoy the humor, but it kind of kills me too. Cause I'm like, you know, yeah. man, guys should go to therapy and coaching. Um, but I, I think it's really, uh, you know, there's a lot of things, there's stigma, there's stereotypes, et cetera. And so I'm hoping that this conversation can help, you know, open people's kind of minds, uh, and maybe even hearts to considering different options that are available to them. Because uh, God knows that a lot of people have anxiety. So, yeah, absolutely. More and more. Um, so, why don't we start out with, uh, you know, we, we like to do this first segment focus on um, kind of making the man and, and kind of really getting to know our guests, which I'm, I'm sure you appreciate as a fellow psychologist. You know, it's all relationship building, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, I, I'd love to just learn more about you and introduce you to our audience. So, um, uh, just why don't you tell me about your experience um, kind of growing up and what, what childhood was like for you? Sure. So I grew up in Muncie, New York, mm -hmm. which is a suburb north of Manhattan. And I had a really wild childhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was the youngest of six. Awesome. And my dad was 45 when he had me yeah. and my mom was 40. And by the time I was a teen, they just like, were like, here's the key to the car. <laughs> you do, do your thing, just let me know where you are. Yeah. And I think like that, that freedom is like so rare these days. And yeah, I totally. definitely took advantage of it. <laughs> um, and then luckily like, you know, come college, I kind of got it together. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was very much into outdoorsy things. My dad took me fishing all the time. Nice. Like, you know, my friends and I, we had like BB guns and crossbows and we just like really had a great time and we would just go wherever. And like, you know, once in a while we called home, there was uh, before the cell phone era. Sure. Era. So, 
Yeah, I had a really fun childhood with like a lot of trouble and it was just great. <laughs> Very I, fun sounds, childhood sounds memories. Like a classic like Tom Sawyer, almost kind of like childhood, which which to your point is kind of rare these days. Um, uh, well, I have two questions. So one, I'm, I'm actually really curious. I mean, you, you are an expert in sort of, um, you know, anxiety disorders. And, and you know, uh, I guess this is the era of helicopter parenting, as they say, uh, you know, the idea of giving kids BB guns and letting them run around um, without supervision and cell phones seems, uh, you know, scary, quite frankly, to a lot of parents. Um, um, maybe it's for the best, like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe kids aren't like accidentally shooting each other as a result of that. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, you know, there, there is this, uh, concern that, you know, without letting boys be boys, they're, they're not sort of developing, um, and not testing their limits and boundaries and learning through trial and error, uh, and maybe also developing their own anxiety because they, they, they are taught that the world is a scary place. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, based on your childhood experience, would you want to replicate that for your, your own kids? Do you think that's important? Or do you think there really is a merit in terms of being perhaps a little bit more safe and conservative these days? It's such a hard question. And I really wish I was better at it myself. Because like even things like the playground, you know, which is pretty safe for like my son's like four and a half. Uh -huh. No, the playground's pretty safe. And I, I just like have these images, you know, of him just like falling down and like, right, right. but, you know, recently he, he, um, it was in a play area. He just jumped off a beanbag, you know, in like the most padded area. And that's where he like split his tongue open. Oh, man. Right. So it's like so hard to predict when these things are going to happen. And I think just like with all anxiety disorders, you know, you're going to take your best guess as to what's like your due diligence, mm -hmm. right? Like what's your, what is considered like proper precaution and what's beyond that. Right. And it's, you want, you want to do it as close as you can to be based on data rather than your emotions. Because like as a parent, you know, you have such powerful emotions, like the love you feel for a child is like, mm unparalleled and you never want to see them hurt and you, you hear them cry and it's like gut-wrenching right so like you really want to keep them safe and i think you know that could be just like with all you know safety related concerns you could take it too far sure and like i actively need to just let my kid make mistakes like he has to fall and you know also you have to just take your best guess as to what is proper precaution and what's beyond that. Totally. Do you, do you think though, as a society, right, in 2021, that we, we have erred too far, right, in terms of like safety and conservatism? And because I had a very similar experience child, you know, growing up, my, my parents rule was just come back before dinner, before it's dark outside. And you know, there's no phones and they trusted <laughs> us to go ride outside. Um, but on the other hand, obviously, yeah, maybe the world is not a safer place. Uh, you know, like uh, there weren't school shootings uh, as much as there were, you know, as it is growing up. So um, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you if you feel like it is, uh, you know, as, to, to your point, is it is it evidence based? Is it data based? The the level of precaution that we're seeing or or are we seeing sort of a, I don't know, a societal anxiety that's gone too far? Right. I, I do think we did go too far. Um, in terms of the overprotection, I think certainly in the social media era, mm -hmm. you know, we're so exposed to all, you know, all hyped stories. And, um, you know, I, I just think that 
because of this, you know, exposure, like we're so interconnected mm. and tragedy just gets way much more coverage and kidnapping gets way much more coverage than like a kid had a fun time in the backyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't think it's backed up in data, the amount of caution that we have. Um, and, you know, I think there, you know, especially the fact that we do have cell phones, I think instead of letting that, you know, I, I think that could be a reason why you could be more trusting. And I think you also have to know your kid, Yeah. right? Like I think some, you know, some kids take advantage of those freedoms. Some kids are like, um, should be watched better. And, you know, it's often the kids who are watched very, very carefully who don't need to be watched as carefully. Fair enough. Um, yeah, but I, I do think we need to, to loosen the leash a little bit on our kids. Yeah. Um, and I almost think like you're, we're seeing a little bit of a backlash uh, against this. I, I don't know if you saw a few years ago, maybe it was like 2012, there was a book that was published called The Dangerous Book for Boys. And it was, uh, yeah, it was like a, a guide to like, how do, how do you tie knots and do all these things, go outside and, you know, scale a fish and do all kinds of uh, uh, things. It well, weren't necessarily dangerous, but they were I right. adventuresome. And it ended up being a bestseller because I think a lot of parents nostalgically look back upon their childhoods, all, all the things that they did. And they're like, oh, I, I, it would be a shame for my children to at least not know some of these things. Um, so, so yeah, maybe there's a good point there. Um, the other question that I was curious is, you know, you mentioned having a lot of this freedom and then, you know, you went off to college, right? And I, I almost see the opposite phenomenon. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, teens and kids who are, very closely monitored by their parents. And then when they go off to college, they have complete freedom, right? And they almost like abuse it because they, they, they've they never had to, you know, uh, non-supervision, you know, and without limits. So um, I'm kind of curious what you, you think about sort of that that dynamic and, and if your observation of that. Do you think it's better to like almost overprotect them and then they'll figure it out on their own when they go to college? Or do you, do you prefer like more freedom uh, pre-18 uh, so that they don't go crazy and like binge drink and and do crazy stuff when they they have freedom as an adult. Yeah, well, as far as my own experience, um, I started college two years later. I actually went to a seminary in Israel for two years between oh, wow. high school and college. Yeah. Um, so high school, you know, I was kind of like a, a mess. I almost didn't graduate. <laughs> like yeah. I, I just like wouldn't show up. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think I did sow my wild oats and I got it out of my system. And I think, you know, the Israel program that I was in was very into like character refinement and responsibility and how learning is cool. Yeah. Right. Like it's actually cool to know things, right. Rather than, and ignorance isn't cool. So I think then I went to college and I, I realized how much wisdom there was out there. Totally. And I actually like appreciate it. So I think there's definitely something to be said about starting college later. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what the rush is that, you know, you have to start college at 18 when your prefrontal cortex is still like, <laughs> still like so underdeveloped. Right. right? Yeah. Especially and, for guys. Yeah. So, so I think like these programs could be very helpful, um, whether it's like a gap year or studying, um, or like some kind of volunteering service. I think there's definitely something to be said about waiting until you're a little bit more mature and you know yourself and, mm. you know, rather than just like, oh, now I can finally drink until I don't remember anything. Totally, totally. 
Well, this is fascinating, though. I have to say, you know, um, and this is why I love doing this segment in terms of getting to know people. When you when you see um, very successful professionals like yourself, you've done a doctorate degree, done postdoctoral fellowship training, you run a successful private practice. You don't imagine that you're someone who, you know, uh, in school or high school was someone who would get in trouble or not show up, you know. Um, yeah. So I, it's I, I have to ask, right? So about this sort of this transition or, or maturation, perhaps, right? So how did you go from being sort of a little bit of a troublemaker in school to all of a sudden deciding to go to seminary and doing this program? Like, what was the thought process that was involved there? Right. So in the uh, Jewish community, it's not uncommon mm-hmm. that that kids do this gap year between high school and college. Mm-hmm. I actually did it for a second year. So um, it's also like really fun, like you're in a different country. And I think you kind of get it out of your system. Um when the stakes are lower. I mean, you're not, you're not jeopardizing your college career right. if you're making a joke out of it. So, um, so it's just part of the, um, part of the zeitgeist in the, in some Jewish communities to go to Israel for a year or so. Yeah. Makes sense. And then tell me about the character development part of it. Cause it sounds like it had a kind of a positive benefit, um, you know, for you. And, and what do you think was effective um, whether it's in that program or potentially if, if people are taking a gap year on their own that, you know, helped you kind of grow up a little bit? Uh, there was a lot of volunteering opportunities. Hmm. Um, I was like in a big brother program, which hmm. was really cool. Um, I think there was a very, very straight up, uh, they call it Musser. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that term? No. Uh, but it, it's basically just lectures on character refinements about being a good person. And it almost was like a culture of people really caring about being a good person. Mm. And you had um, really very loving teachers and a very friendly environment. And it was just based on these, um, you know, just just based on character refinements and also Jewish learning, mm-hmm. which is like very, very heady, mm-hmm. like Talmud for like multiple hours per day. And that is like such an amazing exercise in intellectual acrobatics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so the cool kids were the ones who were like really had it together and the mm-hmm. kids who were really, really smart and knew it the best. Yeah. So I think just like in terms of, what's considered cool in high school was the kids who were like really popular and who were going to all the parties and in israel it was the kids who who were really smart and really kind so so i think so much like having having role models is a really um important factor because that's totally. just we're, that's we're humans we just like to do what's cool and that, if that, being, being nice is cool lesson. Yeah. yeah, because I can imagine like if you're a snot-nosed 18, 19 year old and you're getting lectured about character, you know, you could, you could see it very easily like going over people's heads. But I think because of the context that you describe, right, where it's not just that there's, a, you know, some adult telling you how you should be like it's almost like a dare program in the U.S., but but it's almost like there's a peer reinforcement, right, that that, yeah, if you actually uh, act with character and dignity then that is admired and you want to emulate your peers um i could see how that's actually very powerful do you think it's possible to recreate that outside of a 
very strong spiritual or, or cultural context. Like if someone, let's say, took a gap year here in the U.S. and they decided I want to also volunteer, right? I want to do Teach for America or these other sort of gap year programs. Do you think it's possible or, or it really takes that, that close-knit community to make, make sort of character development work? I, I think it could be replicated. Like, I think like if there was a voice, I don't know, maybe there is, but if there was like a Boy Scouts, mm-hmm. um, Boys and Girl Scouts of America, if they had something between high school and college, I, th- I think, you know, there, yeah, I feel like there is more and more like a thirst for wisdom, like in this whole podcast era mm-hmm. where people like will just listen to hours of information and really, I, I feel like people are, thirsting for wisdom in this ultraviolet times, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. where everything is so, um, you know, so loud. And I, I think there could be, a, you know, I think there should be, and I don't think it needs to be in the context of religion, but something bigger than yourself. And I think, I think volunteering is, is a great example mm-hmm. of something bigger than yourself. Um, you know, I, I was thinking like, it's very easy, especially as a teenager to get very nihilistic. I'm like, what's the point of all of this? Like you're learning and you're coming to grips of the, of our own mortality and like the fact that life is limited and it's easy to think that nothing really matters. I remember like a very powerful thing someone told me was like, what's certainly real is the pain of other people, mm. right? And your own pain. And there's nothing more meaningful that you could do as a human than to relieve the pain of other people. Mm-hmm. And even in like the most nihilistic place I've ever been, like that rang true to me as someone who's yeah. felt pain in his life. Yeah, that that's such a great point too, because you know a lot of people, especially I think young people who might be feeling that pain uh, and struggling growing up, it, it is it is very easy to fall sort of into nihilism or depression. Um, but ironically, I think if you if you have your own personal experience with pain, you could use it as a a point for empathy, right? Because it's like, oh, I, I know what it's like to suffer, and I could see that in other people as well. Um, and and yeah, maybe it becomes a, a a point of leverage to do something about that, whether it's big brothers, big sisters, right? Uh, volunteering in some other way. Um, I, I think it's such a great. Um, lesson from your own sort of upbringing in terms of sort of, you know, what made you who you are. So um, I'd I'd love to hear uh, the, you know, the continuation of that. So, okay, so you did this program in Israel, um, started college. Tell me, like, kind of going through college and and kind of uh, how you decided, uh, how how that experience was and how you decided to um, pursue grad school and become a psychologist. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for such a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. I have an older sister who's a clinical psychologist, mm-hmm. who's actually a psychodynamic cool. uh, clinical psychologist, and I kind of went the other way. Yeah. But, um, you know, she she got me into Freud a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, and I read The Interpretation of Dreams. And that was even in high school. And I, I was really into, like, trying to understand people on a very deeper level. Yeah. And I, I think Freud had some really cool ideas um, about like what's really going on mm-hmm. under the surface and whether or not that's all true is, um, you know, 
I, I don't know how much uh, research is behind all of his ideas, sure. but I really just like this idea of like being able to understand my friends on a deeper level. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, so I have to ask. I have to ask on this, yeah. especially because you know I, you you didn't sort of pursue um, the type of psychotherapy that's kind of uh, evolved from Freud's tradition, right? And psychoanalytic right. psychotherapy, if people are familiar with it. But um, I feel like Freud gets a bad rap these days, right? People kind of uh, knock Freud for being totally wrong. And, you know, obviously he's a product of his era. Um, but do you think people should should study or read Freud? Does he, does he still have value in 2021? Um, I do think so. Um, I, I definitely shouldn't sit here pretending I'm like a Freud scholar sure, because I definitely didn't give him much time beyond you know beyond high school and behind beyond beyond like my early um you know kind of like the history of psychology right um so I, I do think he contributed a lot in terms of just this idea that you could talk to someone and it doesn't have to be uh you know medical interventions like there's such a thing as talk therapy that's huge right, right? And, and I, I think there is something extremely deep that we can't see mm -hmm. that he tapped into. Um, but I think in terms of practically, and especially in the area that I work on, like um, OCD, so many people spend so many years in treatment just like discussing like what's underlying these mm -hmm. um, intrusive thoughts. Right, so I get so many people after they've been years of psychodynamic or psychoanalytic psychotherapy who like made very, very little progress. And in the course of just um, really just a few sessions, you see such major transformations. So I think it has a value. Um, I think maybe I'm just biased in terms of the area that I work that's just so conducive to cognitive behavioral therapy. Sure. And I, I think I'm, I'm probably pretty philosophically and clinically aligned with you. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. You know, I think um, people take for granted, that, especially back in the era, there, there was no talk therapy. You kind of invented it for all intents and purposes. Right. Yeah. And even major notions like that we have an unconscious mind, which we take for granted, are definitely major contributions. So, um, yeah, it wasn't right about everything, but, but uh, very, very influential and, and probably worth worth studying. And, and obviously his... Uh, his protege, a Jung as well. Um, so, okay. So you're kind of going through college. You don't know exactly what you want to do with your life. You did have uh, one of your own role models, obviously your sister. Um, but what, what kind of made you decide to take the leap and pursue, pursue this path? Yeah. So while I was in college, I actually worked at a home for individuals with developmental disabilities mm. and different psychiatric conditions. Um, I have an older brother who's a medical doctor mm -hmm. and I was kind of deciding between medicine and like of my older brother and psychology of my older sister and working in the group home. I really found it just so amazing how much uh, capacity you have to really affect people just using talk mm -hmm. and really being able to to make the type of changes that are so meaningful. Like I think um, it's very easy to get, um, well, I, I think a good way to put it is like, if, if you have physical health, 
mm-hmm. right? Without mental health, like, you know, what's it for? Exactly. So I feel like it really took people to the next level of like being able to really thrive in their lives, being able to get past extremely challenging circumstances. And I, I found that, you know, psychotherapy and talk therapy really helps bring people to that next level of not just being alive, but, but like enjoying your life, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a great role to play. And I didn't go straight into uh, clinical psych. I actually took two years off to just figure it out. I guess I have a two years thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, what did you do during those two years? I ran marathons. Amazing. I, yeah, and I, I continued working in the, the group home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a job. And just from working on the weekends, I was able to support myself and mm-hmm. try to just figure it out. And I got health insurance, which was huge. Sure. And um, I just, and then I applied to grad school. I didn't want to just go into it because I was a psychology major. I actually wanted to make sure that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then I just uh, made it happen. I think that's such a valuable lesson for for all of our listeners. You know, I, I I get asked for career advice all the time from people, whether it's to pursue psychology, medicine, any other field. And you know, one of the things that I recommend is is try to spend some time shadowing. Uh, or working in the field as much as you can, even if you can't do it directly, like you obviously can't practice psychotherapy without a license, but you absolutely can volunteer, you can do assessments, you can work in a group home. Um, And I think it's very eye-opening, right? Because the idea that people have about what it's like to be uh, a doctor of any sort is very different than the reality, right? Right. It's not the Hollywood, um, you know, stereotype from Sopranos, or I don't even know where, where people get their notions from. Uh, but yeah, people, I, my experience when they, when they go do work in a clinical setting, um, they either sometimes fall in love with it and they know it's the right thing for them to do, or, or quite frankly, fall out of love with it. And they're like, oh, I, this is not, I don't want to be a dentist or do whatever for, for notions that they couldn't even anticipate, which is like, oh, it's like, you got to crouch over all day. And this is not like, you know, it's like, things <laughs> right, it's you a little thing. Anticipate until you're actually doing the job and getting your hands dirty yeah. and you're like, oh, okay. I like this or I don't like this. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think some of the, the questions that people are like grappling with, we actually had someone in our community ask about sort of career transitions. Um, and, you know, we, you can give a, like a lot of advice and frameworks for how to think about career decisions. But to some degree, if you have a notion, uh, yeah, try, try before you buy is not a, not a bad uh, way of going about it. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience because like there was even behavior plans and you really got to do much more than you know, a lot of people will do like, um, you know, if they're going into research, then research is a great experience, but you know, you have to do research in order to get into a clinical psych program. Um, so, you know, the group home was a great experience of like getting to really understand behavior plans and how they work and implementing them and working with psychologists. So it's definitely a great experience. Amazing. And then, uh, so you, you get into grad school and then now you have to go through this gauntlet, right? You have to, you know, do a, a, a doctorate, uh, do a dissertation, do an internship, do a fellowship. So tell me a little bit about what that experience was like, because it's, it's not easy to go through the, the many years of training to become a doctoral level healthcare professional. Uh, and also why you decided to um, specialize in OCD of all things. Yes. Great question. So I happened to have gone to an 
awesomely supportive and even fun clinical psych program. That, that is a rarity, um, so. <laughs> I know, like everyone was just so real. Yeah. And um, it was just, the professors were all supportive and it was intellectually stimulating. Uh, it was just such a, a really great experience. I mean, it was definitely difficult, the coursework and the research, uh, you know, your master's thesis and your dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it, it was jumping through a ton of hoops and you get really good at applying for things, <laughs> right? Like you're applying for externship and then you're applying for the next externship and internship. You know, it probably wore down like, you know, that binder that you bring in every interview, right. <laughs> like it's probably to a nub. Uh, but there's just a ton of hoops to jump through and, you know, to have a supportive environment, like, mm -hmm. you know, that I had in grad school was like really indispensable mm -hmm. and really made all the difference. And there was also like a, a lot of different options in terms like allowed you to go into the clinical direction that you're interested in. Yeah. So there was a acceptance and commitment therapy lab. There was a dialectical behavior therapy lab. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a parent-child interaction therapy lab. So you had so many choices of the population mm -hmm. that you wanted to work with and the therapeutic modality that you wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. And um, so for my second externship, I was at a OCD specialty practice in New York City called the Reed Center. Okay. And I think, you know, what I fell in love with is how conducive the treat the condition is to the treatment that we do. Mm. Right. So exposure therapy, like of all the treatments that I've done, whether it's um, dialectical behavior therapy or working or, or whichever diagnoses that I've worked with, like depression mm -hmm. or bipolar disorder, um, OCD and anxiety disorder disorders are so well targeted by behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And I know that I have a deep desire to be an effective person sure. and to, to see change in front of me. Right. Right. And it's probably, um, you know, selfish in a way, because like, I really want to see that change. Like, mm -hmm. um, I do have patience, uh, with the C, um, <laughs> but I, I just love seeing those changes in front of you and people telling you like, wow, I didn't know that I could do this for like 20 years. I, I haven't, you know, gone outside to, um, to a crowded area. And then I tried it and look, I could do it. Wow. So just like being able to give someone that on a regular basis is so rewarding. And I just fell in love with that. Tremendously. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think that also helps to spell one of the other notions that people have about therapy. You know, there's this classical uh, stereotype that, you know, people just kind of go to therapy forever, treat clinicians, try to keep people in therapy forever. Um, and I'm like, it's actually nothing further from the truth, especially if you're kind of more of a behavioral therapist. Um, you know, the conditions like OCD and other anxiety disorders are, are the closest things to being curable, I would argue. Um, you know, in, in the spectrum of psych psychological conditions and often, yeah, eight, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, you can see uh, not only remarkable improvements, but yeah, like night and day differences in, in functioning. And it is tremendously um, rewarding. So it makes, makes tons of sense why you decided to, 
you know, pursue that uh, path and kind of specialize. And so, you know, when you finish your training, you know, you're getting licensed. Uh, I'm sure you had a lot of different options, especially in the Northeast in terms of where you could go. You could work in a hospital, a community center. Uh, tell me about how you kind of decided about where you wanted to apply your energy in terms of the setting. Uh, you mean like for my first job? Yeah, your first job and how you ended up even in the place that you are now. Okay, great question. So I really honed my skill of treating OCD very like um, very deliberately to the point where I was I felt after my postdoctoral fellow that I had enough experience to go on independently. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to start a private practice. Like I listened to a ton of podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always also very interested in entrepreneurship. Yeah. And like, I really liked the relationship between risk and reward. Mm. And, um, you know, if you work harder, you get more reward. And if you work less harder, if you work less hard, then, you know, you get less reward. And I, I find that extremely motivating. Mm -hmm. um, so like, so sometimes if you have a nine to five, you know, if you do amazing therapy, and you see a ton of patients, you end up with the same paycheck. And I really like this idea of, of building something mm -hmm. um, and having that freedom and flexibility to just do things the way you want to do it. Yeah. And so I just straight from postdoc, I started my private practice. It must have been uh, a little intimidating and scary. Uh, how did you how did you overcome your own sort of anxiety and like, oh, hanging up a shingle and making sure that people are actually coming in? Um, so how did I do that? Let's see. Well, first I have an amazingly supportive wife. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> right. A hundred percent. So both emotionally and materially, like if I didn't have health insurance through her, mm. it would have been much harder and I probably would have just done it much more gradually. Yeah. Um, but I, I recognize that, you know, there's, there's a formula to getting it right. And there's such a demand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you, if you just do really good work mm -hmm. and you work with integrity and you market with integrity and you speak to every single person mm -hmm. <laughs> that could possibly, you know, you just make these connections and people refer to you and you just make it happen. And it, I want to, I want to make it sound easy right. because there was like, it took like six months to be able to, mm -hmm. to actually have a practice going. Sure. I remember like I started in October and like, you know, things that first Thanksgiving, like there was like no calls. And yeah. I remember uh, just like thinking like, did I make the right choice over here? Yeah. And I had this really nice clinician in the office next door. Um, who was a marriage and family therapist who was just so supportive and said like this is not the time when people start therapy yeah. don't worry like you're really great and she was just so kind and you know it really you should never underestimate you know what a few words could do for another person who's having mm -hmm. a hard time yeah because that really gave me you know the confidence to just keep going in it and yeah. you know to this day where I have you know, a full schedule and two full-time and a part-time clinician working with me. Amazing. You know, that really got me there. Yeah. 
That that's such a great lesson, by the way. You know, it's it's funny if you actually look at the research literature on psychotherapy. Um, a lot of the benefit actually comes from the first couple of sessions, which is kind of paradoxical because you know you, you haven't done a ton of exposure yet or taught sort of you know uh, cognitive skills yet. But I, I think it really does come from the installation of hope, as you said. You know, like just to sit someone down and say, "Hey, look, you're not crazy. What you're experiencing, yeah, maybe it's kind of um, you know gone to an extreme, but it's it's certainly not abnormal." right? This is, this is what it's called. This is how we characterize it. We can treat this. And I'm optimistic that you will get better and I will help you. Those words are very powerful uh, for, for people. Um, and that even before they're even better, just the notion that you can get better and that you no longer have to suffer, I think um, can, can definitely lift people's moods, right? It instills that, that hope and optimism that I think we all need. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, listening and hearing this wonderful story of your life there's 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 such a theme that cuts across it which to me is support right you know you mentioned the support in seminary the very supportive graduate program that let you pursue your interests a supportive wife that let you go off into private practice and um supportive colleagues right that that you know gave you hope that you know you can you can flourish and be successful so i i really just wanted to point that out to all of our listeners here is you know and this is why I love just digging into people's life stories. It's so easy to see someone who's a success at the end and we apotheosize them and they're like, oh, there's they're, you know, it's it's almost like uh, the great man uh, myth, you know, yeah. and, and we don't sort of see all the support that they got along the way. And it's so great when you talk to people, especially people who are immensely successful, they, they often in with great humility like yourself, uh, you know, attribute part of their maturation success to support. So I think that's a great lesson to, um, you know, everyone listening is it doesn't have to just be on your shoulders of like, okay, you got to will your way to success through pure motivation and willpower. Yes, in the end, the responsibility falls on you. But there really is something to be said about finding supportive partners, colleagues, or environments that can enable you to flourish as an individual. So don't don't think that you have to sort of do it alone. And in fact, it's probably better if you don't. Um, that's also why we literally created an online community for for guys as well, so that they don't feel like self-improvement has to be done by themselves. They can do it, you know, with the exact social social support that you're describing as well. Yeah, you got to be very mindful of the people you surround yourself with, because like, you know, people could really cut you down and people could really help build you up. Totally. And on, on that note, you know, we often talk about the idea that we're, we're shaped by the five people that we spend the most time with. I, I'd love to hear who were the most kind of influential uh, male role models in your life? Okay, cool. That's a great question. So, so I, I think, I know in terms of like a primary role model, I, I, my father was always a huge role model in my life. Mm. Um, so he, he wasn't a very materially successful person, but he was an extremely hard worker. Mm -hmm. And he is actually a Holocaust survivor. Wow. And um, so he, he, um, he, his father, so he was born in 1940 and his father was like a partisan mm -hmm. and you know, when the Nazis invaded Poland, where he was born, like he, he took his family, mm -hmm. my grandfather took his family into the woods. Wow. And they lived in the woods for like two years, like through the winters in Poland. 
Jeez. So he always really instilled this message in me, like of of what it means to be a survivor. Yeah. And um, how ultimately, at, you know, we could have our support, but almost like you said, you know, there's so much that life throws at you, and you could transcend that. Mm-hmm. And there's never like a point where you could just give in, like you just keep on moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really powerful message for me. And, mm-hmm. and I saw it in his own life. Like he was an extremely hard worker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he never went to college, mm-hmm. um, but he, you know, he worked a job and he worked his way up in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And then at night he was a maitre d' at a wedding hall. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd get back at two o'clock in the morning. I remember like he used to just check in on me. <laughs> Like sometimes I'd be awake and he just like kind of like just very proud of his family after working until two in the morning. And he always came home with like the best leftovers from his weddings, <laughs> like a huge pan of like sesame chicken. But, you know, so I think he's an amazing role model of just like working really hard and, you know, what it means to to survive no matter what and to protect your family. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, that that, that is some of the most difficult stories you know we, we've ever heard as a as a people. Um, I'm curious, like, what what do you think that made that effective for you in terms of transmitting it? It's very easy, I think, for parents to tell stories about the suffering and hardships that they experience, and for the, but for the kids to feel it, right? Because they didn't maybe live through that experience themselves, or maybe they were too young to remember it. Um, and so it just seems like a faraway story or almost fable, right? They believe it, but it, it's it's hard to like grasp that reality um, when you're sort of safe and secure in your your better life that your parents sacrificed for you. But what what do you think it made that effective for you that it did hit home for you and and, and did feel sort of powerfully resonant? Was it the fact that he 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 lived it and embodied it by working hard or or, or something else? Um, I, I think it was it was so alive in my household, Mm. like he definitely had, you know, how trauma transmits through generation. And I think he definitely had, you know, or he's still alive. He, he definitely has some remnant trauma. And I remember like as a kid, he would tell me like, you know, eat your food fast because, you know, if you do, no one can take it away from you. Um, So he, he like embodied it. And, you know, even recently, like we were going on a road, we were just like driving Mm-hmm. And he would point out like which woods are the good woods to hide in, right? So, so, um, so it was definitely like alive and real to him, and as such, it was real to me. And I think I really felt it the most um, when I became a father myself. And I would think of like how careful you are about the comforts of your child, mm. like you're you're going to the room to make sure like the temperature is not you know, 74 and too hot or like 68 and too cold, right? You want to, and I'm thinking like, damn, he was sleeping in the snow, yeah. right? And um, yeah, so so I, I think it was, it was something that, you know, there, there was definitely a tremendous amount of pain that, that I saw. So it became very, very real yeah. to me. Like he lost his sister, mm. um, you know, running through the woods. They just had to keep on running. And, um, you know, so he definitely sacrificed a ton. So just like seeing his pain, um, I was also always very proud of him. Like he used to give presentations to my, you know, to my classmates, like in third grade, like you really learn about this when you're very, very young. 
And I was always just like so proud, you know, to be a first generation Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And, um, you know, that he did that all and he was still able to like come to this country mm-hmm. um, and like build up a family. I, right. You know, it was something that I was even impressed with in the third grade. Totally. What a what an incredible story uh, and what an incredible dad that you had to that, you know, uh, is able to live through all that and transcend it and, you know, pass on uh, some of the positive uh, along with, uh, you know, the challenges that that, that all came with. Yeah. I think that's also a very, you know, powerful story, too, is, you know, some of us are very fortunate to have positive male role models, especially um, father figures in our life. Unfortunately, in American society, sometimes that's lacking. Um, but I, I, I do think actually that's that's the power of uh, stories, podcasts and books is you absolutely can actually find um, role models vicariously. Um, and there is actually uh, value, I think, from hearing other people's stories and drawing inspiration from it. Actually, one of my favorite books um, is called uh, Man is Wolf to Man. And it's actually a, a, an account of um, uh, a, a Jewish man who survived um, th- that time period in Eastern Europe, uh, was thrown into a gulags, actually, in, a, in Russia, um, survived it by pretending to have some medical knowledge and being like the assistant to like the doctor in the camps, which is how he survived it escapes, uh, you know, comes, immigrates to America, actually goes through medical school and becomes a very prominent, like head of surgery um, in Iowa. And, you know, lived a very like nice life after that, would go to the country club and play tennis with his wife. But like nobody knew this crazy story that he lived through. And and, and until he published sort of his memoirs, um, people sort of couldn't, couldn't believe it. But it, but it's an incredible story of, you know, inspiration and overcoming adversity. And I think even if you or your family didn't live through it, you can you can draw inspiration and, and uh, certainly gratitude um, from you know what happened not even that long ago, one generation ago. Um, yeah. So if you don't, that's that's the, hopefully the lesson to our listeners. If if you don't have them directly, you, you certainly can have them uh, vicariously. And I think that's actually why biographies and and movies are actually not a waste of time if they if they do present good archetypal uh, lessons and role models. So. And I think it's universal. You see kids running around with their favorite, you know, athletes jerseys or, or uh, posters on their wall. Um, and, it's, and it's truly a universal phenomenon. At first, I didn't really understand it. I was like, why, why do people, you know, uh, want to be someone else almost? But, but I, I, I think it's almost like an imprinting or modeling that's happening in terms of trying to figure out as you try on different identities, who, who you want to be and what characteristics or qualities or virtues that you want to learn from, from other people who, who, you know, in 10, 20 years time, you, you know, you may be like them. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome point. Um, uh, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but a, a fun question that I like to ask, um, and I'd love to hear from you is if you could almost like, um, go back and give advice to your younger self. Uh, what, what would you say uh, to your younger self? Even, and and what, what age would you even give that advice? Um, great question. Uh, so I think I had a hard time in elementary school um, with this idea of popularity. Like I definitely wasn't a popular kid. I was overweight and um, you know, I had a hard time you know, just girls weren't into me. And uh, I think an important lesson I could have, it would have been nice to know is that like, 
popularity is not so important and like just be grateful for the friends that you have mm -hmm. and um you know that one day you'll meet an amazing wife <laughs> don't worry if like you know the pretty girl in school doesn't want to look at you totally totally yeah it's so funny too when you look back upon it like funnily like from a very logical point of view you're like like what does it even matter in elementary school anyway the likelihood you're gonna seriously date anyone is slim to none um yeah. or obviously end up with that person but yeah in the time you know just because of peer pressure and other things it, it is tremendously important right it's such a status symbol yeah right but you know in the moment you know we don't have that kind of forward-looking point of view hopefully that's why you have uh, older older brothers or fathers who can maybe distill that um yeah but that, that is definitely a powerful lesson and, and on that note a, a, um, a great uh, also book recommendation if people want to dig into it is um this book that's also been a, a popular seller called the courage to be disliked um is actually a, a, one of my favorite books and it's it's very much along those themes it's it's not to be unlikable that's obviously not the goal i do think you should try to be agreeable yeah. obviously have good relationships with other people but there is there is a merit i think in terms of you know being willing especially if it's standing up for yourself and your values and doing the right thing that that may require you to be disliked um at least oh, absolutely. In the former, uh, context and so i do think you know it's useful to have that sort of courage i could definitely use that i definitely find that i try to be liked by a lot of people <laughs> it's very important for me uh, yeah so i should practice being unliked <laughs> true true for all of us i think it, it takes uh, it takes a lot to go against the grain